the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us for another installment. Please follow us at danproftshow.com or on Twitter at danproft or at Dan Prof Show, also on Facebook. Dan Prof Show is the handle on Facebook as well. Uh, yesterday, a big news made by Attorney General Barr speaking to the National Sheriff's Association and announcing a crackdown on sanctuary jurisdictions, states, counties, cities, two in particular that the federal government is suing, New Jersey targeting a law that limits the information that's the state's law enforcement agencies may share with ICE officials on unauthorized immigrants living there, as well as an executive order passed by King County in Washington State. King County is the home of Seattle. That Listen to this. Bars its airport from being used for deportation flights. Uh, this follows uh, on uh, a lawsuit that was filed two weeks earlier. The federal government suing California over a new state law banning for-profit immigration detention centers. And uh, Attorney General Barr explained the posture of the administration when it comes to immigration enforcement. And although local communities frequently feel the effects of unfettered illegal immigration and the effects of criminal aliens, the only authority in the country that is vested with the power and the responsibility of dealing with that problem is the federal government. No state can deal with it alone. And Barr went on to say that uh, yesterday uh, that was it, the, the policy represented a significant escalation, the lawsuit, significant escalation in the federal government's efforts to confront the resistance of sanctuary cities. We will consider, and this is important, we will consider taking action against any jurisdiction that or any politician who unlawfully obstructs the federal enforcement of immigration law. See, to me, that last part is the key. And we'll see if the Department of Justice is up to it once an opportunity presents itself. But there have been opportunities in the past that have not been seized. I'm talking about moving past going after sanctuary cities and going after sanctuary city politicians. If uh, you have a, a politician in office who is guilty of breaking federal immigration law, then that politician needs to be prosecuted under the law. I mean, it seems fairly straightforward, but uh, for some reason this is complicated. We had the case where the mayor of Oakland aided and abetted, this is uh, within the last couple of years, aided and abetted the escape of a person in this country illegally, tipping them off that ICE agents were en route to arrest this person. I mean, that's aiding and abetting, resisting arrest. That's a crime. And so uh, I hope that Barr and the Department of Justice expands 
the number of defendants to include my fair city of Chicago and my fair county of Cook and my fair state of Illinois, among others, the more the several hundred around the country. And if there are instances where there is an office holder who has broken the law with respect to trying to uphold this sanctuary, this fictional sanctuary city designation and to run interference for people who are here illegally. And in many cases, people who are here illegally and have committed additional crimes, then that politician needs to be made an example of legitimately and under the law needs to be prosecuted. Otherwise all this uh, prattling on about uh, who's above the law and who isn't forget the people here illegally. What about the people in office who behave like they're above the law while they carry on about uh, President Trump not being above the law? And uh, President Trump in New Hampshire last night made his philosophical position quite clear. And it's an important contrast that he's framing come November. Washington Democrats put the needs of illegal immigrants before the well-being of American citizens. They want to let... Anyone into our country from all around the world, just come on in, folks. We're going to give you free health care. We're going to give you free education. We're going to give you more than our vets are getting. We're going to give you every family. We'll get a free Rolls Royce. Well, not quite a free Rolls Royce, but you get the point. Uh, Everybody on that stage, those presidential debate stages for the Democrats, should people in this country receive the same health care benefits People in this country here illegally, should they receive the same health care benefits of U.S. citizens? All the hands go up. No problem with that. There is uh, the position of the Democrat socialists is clear. The way to eliminate illegal immigration is to remove the illegal and remove anything resembling our national boundaries. And people can just come here on their own terms whenever they want and access welfare state benefits as they see fit and can otherwise qualify for. And, of course, that's behind uh, the legislation we talked about on Friday night show, this uh, uh, New Way Forward Act that was proposed by the socialists in the House, like uh, Chewy Garcia, who's a congressman who represent, who uh, replaced Louis Gutierrez in Chicago, and a bunch of, you know, a bunch of the other usual suspects, the socialist Spice Girls and the rest. And what's the reality on the ground? I mean, you heard the president talk about it at the State of the Union address. We played it multiple times in this show. You can't play those stories enough, frankly. Put human faces on what we're talking about here. The story of Rocky Jones, the 51-year-old man who was killed by an illegal a person in this country illegally who went on a rampage. His brother, Jody Jones, who was at the State of the Union uh, address was recognized by the president. You remember him tearing up and upon that recognition. I played before friends of mine, uh, a friend of mine from central Illinois, Eric Brady, who lost his wife to an illegal immigrant DUI fled the country. No justice for him and his wife. Friend of mine who lost his brother in Chicago DUI fled the country from this sanctuary jurisdiction No justice for him, his family, his brother. Kate Steinle, the higher profile cases, there are many others. There's too many. And that's the point. This is not mutually exclusive. America being a welcoming country for people who want to better their lives and 
add something to the country in the process. Great. Super. I'm pro-immigration, pro-legal immigration, as pro-legal immigration as there is uh, uh, within the conservative ranks, I, I suspect. But uh, this idea that you have to choose between lawlessness or being a welcoming country, that you can't have equal protection before the law and apply those same standards of fairness and equity to those who want to come here, the same uh, principles behind the those enshrined in our Constitution. I mean, it's absurd. That's a straw man argument that the radical left is making, and it needs to be called out over and over and over again. California, one of those jurisdictions sued by the Department of Justice. ICE reported uh, on uh, Wednesday last week, hundreds of Orange County jail inmates on whom the agency, ICE, had active detainers were rearrested over the past two years on charges including rape, assault with a deadly weapon, and child sex offenses. According to county data, officials at the Southern California Jail did not notify ICE when it released 2,121 inmates with detainers on them in 2018 and 2019. Over the same period, another 1,315 were released to ICE upon completion of their local sentences in accordance with California state law. According to ICE, 411 of the released inmates have been rearrested and booked into the Orange County Jail on additional charges, which include domestic violence, identity theft, driving under the influence. The uh, law in California, which became law in 2017, prohibits state and local law enforcement agencies from detaining illegal immigrants for violating immigration laws except in cases where they have been convicted of serious or violent offenses. And so you have a revolving door of people who shouldn't be in this country, who should have been deported, not just be coming here illegally, but committing gruesome crimes on top of it. And they're just turnstiled out of the penal system in California to victimize more people. How, how does that make any sense? How do you square that with government's first responsibility at every level to provide for the physical security of the jurisdiction's constituents? How do you square that with equal protection before the law? You can't. Democrats have a losing argument, but even more importantly, they have a deadly position, and it needs to be stopped. And the only way it's going to be stopped is by turning these people out come November. This is Dan Proft. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show president trump in new hampshire last evening rallying his faithful in the thousands more than ten thousand, according to some reports and focusing on Democrats' extremism, extremism when it comes to uh, not enforcing immigration law, eliminating immigration law, eliminating uh, such a thing as our national boundaries. Also focusing on extremism when it comes to uh, 
Americans' health insurance and the extremism, of course, like taking it away from 180 million people who enjoy their private health insurance. Remember this. Washington Democrats have never been more extreme. Taking their cues from Crazy Bernie, 132 congressional Democrats have signed up for Bernie's health care takeover that would strip 180 million Americans of their very, very coveted private coverage. The Democrat Party wants to run your health care, but they can't even run a caucus in Iowa. Yeah, that still has some currency, probably a, a bit yet, at least through Super Tuesday. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment, chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. He has written about the topic. Phil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan, great to be with you. The prescription drug policy issue specifically uh, as a an election issue, uh, the president has spent some time talking about uh, transparency, but ultimately what uh, voters want to hear is about uh, cost reduction. What's a sort of a market reform that the President Trump and Republicans have put forward to address the prescription drug matter? There have been a lot of them. I think to, to me, the most important thing to do is actually the hardest, which is to make the actual cost of developing drugs and bringing them to market less. Uh, right now, it's over two and a half billion dollars on average. And when it costs that much to develop and bring a new drug to market, there's got to be some way to make that cost and a reasonable return on capital back or else you're not going to get people developing drugs and new cures, which we certainly would not want to happen. And that's, of course, the problem with most of the Democrats' approaches is they want to impose arbitrary price controls without fixing any of the actual cost drivers. And if you do that, uh, you're going to totally crush innovation, research and development. You're not going to get new cures anymore. I mean, Nancy Pelosi's bill basically has the government set the price for drugs uh, by telling the drug companies, this is the price we want. And if you don't want to charge the price that we think you should charge, we're going to tax you 95% of your previous year's gross sales of that product. That bill actually passed the House. If you do something like that, you're not going to get any new cures. Private sector medical R&D will totally collapse. You will not get new cures. And of course, that's a disaster, not just from a health standpoint, but from a cost standpoint, because if we don't get new Alzheimer's drugs, the long-term care costs are going to be, are going to swamp everything else in this country. And so there's really an imperative that we get the R&D incentive right. That said, I would like to see a few of the things that Republicans have talked about done. And I think that the three bullet points that I would really stress are, uh, number one, we've got to fix the rebate system. Right now, the middlemen, the pharmacy benefit managers who are supposed to represent the pharmacies and therefore supposed to be negotiating for lower prices, have actually developed a business model where they're negotiating for higher prices because they tell the manufacturers, look, charge a high, the highest price you can, a super high price, and give us a very large rebate because the PBMs right now have an exemption from the federal anti-kickback statute that allows them to divert rebates to their own profits and charge uh, customers based on the list price. And so they're not pushing for lower prices. They're pushing for higher prices. The largest PBM, OptumRx, actually told drug manufacturers, hey, you can raise prices anytime you want, but if you want to cut prices, you need to give us seven calendar quarters of notice, almost two years of notice. Hmm. Uh, That's a huge problem. So I would like to see the anti-kickback exemption repealed, and at least in government programs, if not uh, everywhere in the market, uh, they should be required to pass all discounts and rebates through at the point of sale. What about some of the ideas that have incubated up from the House Republican Study Committee, eliminating the employer mandate while maintaining the pre-existing condition protections, uh, equalizing tax treatment uh, between employer-sponsored health insurance and individual coverage, and the uh, reforms to HSAs to expand accessibility? 
Yeah, I love the, the RSC health care plan, I think, is the best comprehensive Republican health care plan we've seen. I really hope that that'll be a consensus. And if we do have a situation where uh, Republicans have the House, Senate and White House, I hope we'll pass that rather than, you know, having 10 different health care plans and ending up with nothing, which is the problem we had last time. I think the RSC plan solves the major problems with Obamacare. Um, well, you need to keep politically for good or ill, which is, you know, the pre-existing condition uh, exclusions. And the president, of course, has, uh, has said that he's going to keep that ban on pre-existing condition exclusions. And their plan does that. The big part of their plan that I think is so important is the expansion in HSAs to a much higher dollar amount, $18,000 for a family, and the ability to use HSA dollars to pay premiums, which makes HSAs universal and much, much more useful than they are right now. and will create a lot more individual ownership and competition in the healthcare market. I think that overall, that's probably the best comprehensive Republican healthcare plan we've seen so far. And well, so I hope that does become the consensus. Uh, what about on the other side, I mean, is there any real difference other than pace between what uh, any of the Democrat candidates for president are proposing, those who are, are proposing a front door government takeover of health insurance and by extension health care, and those who are proposing to, quote unquote, improve Obamacare to sort of get to the same place through the back door? The only difference is how fast they want to get there and how honest they are about it. But that's it. Uh, all of the Democratic contenders want everyone forced into a single-payer government-run health care system. Uh, the out-and-proud socialists like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren said they wanted to do it immediately. Now they've both sort of backed off that and said they need to have a transition plan, which is interesting because the so-called moderates like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar have said, hey, uh, we want to get there eventually, but we need to have a transition plan. So they're all basically saying the same thing. Uh, the difference is just about how they it, how honest they are about it, and how fast they want to get there. To me, the most remarkable thing is the way Pete Buttigieg has approached, has approached this, because he has sort of savaged Sanders and Warren for, you know, their plan is ridiculous, how are you going to pay for it, all this, people are going to backlash. And then he says, my plan is a glide path to your plan. So, <laughs> right, well, exactly. Right? I mean, yeah. As you write in the Washington Times, AARP is a big for-profit insurance company in its own right. They're basically the marketing arm, the public face of United Health, uh, at least when it comes to their Medigap, Medicare supplemental policies. And a lot of people don't understand this. AARP has an exclusive deal with United Health, the largest health insurance company in the country. They don't sell anything other than United Health insurance products. And they take a 5% VIG off the top of every policy that has the AARP name on it, a 4.95 to be precise. And they think that because they call it a royalty instead of a commission, they don't have to comply with any of the state rules and regulations for insurance sellers and the disclosures and everything else. And so they've created a cozy little arrangement that makes them over $600 million a year. And if you're going to AARP <laughs> to buy your uh, insurance, you need to understand you are only going to see United Health products. You will not see any other competitors and you might not see the, uh, the, the plan that's best for you because they're only showing you one insurance product and because they're taking that 5% royalty off the top for themselves. You know, they were huge advocates of Obamacare, even though seniors were opposing it 14 to 1. Uh, they supported it very strongly. And they got a car that. Their Medigap policies are the only policies left in America that can still exclude pre-existing conditions. And uh, they've made a significant amount of money uh, as a consequence of that. And so I think that as we move forward in this healthcare debate, and there's going to be one over the next couple of months because they've set up sort of a May 22nd cliff on some healthcare programs to try to put pressure on the Senate on some of these issues, uh, it's very important when politicians 
politicians see all these ads and all this advocacy stuff from AARP to understand, you know, they are financially in bed with the largest insurance company, which also owns the largest PBM, Pharmacy Benefit Manager, OptumRx, is owned by United Health, And so their position in all of these policy debates is really colored by their business relationships. You know what AARP should do just to insulate themselves is hire Hunter Biden. Uh, make sure that this that arrangement yeah, doesn't... Yeah, he's uh, a very sharp guy. He's it, a very sharp guy. Yeah, I know. Joe says so. Uh, Phil Kirpin, President of the American Commitment, Chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good one, guys. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and I've missed AOC. I, I think um, I didn't realize how much I missed her during the whole focus on impeachment, and she was sort of quieted down a bit, and she didn't show up to the State of the Union address. I, I don't re- really think I appreciated how much I missed her until her recent Instagram post where she tackled some of the uh, salient issues of the day, like Rush Limbaugh being conferred the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Ad said State of the Union address and uh, other matters related to the State of the Union address, you know, in the context of the deep policy thinking that she does and then communicates about it to her uh, Marxist loyalists. AOC on Rush Limbaugh and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. This is just delightful. Reaction to Rush Limbaugh receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom. First of all, the Presidential Medal of Freedom is an extraordinarily sacred, sacred. Um, award. We're talking about putting someone on the same level as Rosa Parks, you know, for example, in terms of their contributions to American <laughs> progress. Uh, Rush Limbaugh oh. is a violent racist. Um, violent. But yeah, even just on top of that, um, to do it in the middle of a State of the Union and not even dignify it with its own ceremony as it has, it, there's all sorts of norms that are being violated, not just for people's humanity, but also it humanity. truly just cheapens wow. the value of it. Um, also, him pretending to be surprised was such a joke. This has been news all day. There have been multiple reports for multi- from multiple news outlets saying that Rush Limbaugh was going to receive the Medal of Freedom. And then Trump announced it and he had to, like, you know, pretend that this was some kind of Oprah moment um, was so disingenuous. Well, boy, that's a sort of a cheap shot at Oprah. I take umbrage at that. But um, I, let's start with sacred. Uh, how sacred is it? Joe Biden got one. That's how sacred it is. When President Obama conferred the Presidential Medal of Freedom on, to Joe Biden, was he putting Joe Biden on the same level as Rosa Parks? <laughs> I don't think so. And I don't think anybody believes he was. When Gloria Estefan from the Miami Sound Machine got one, was she being put on the same level as Rosa Parks? When Bill Cosby got one from George W. Bush, was he being put on this? Of course not. Sacred, this and that. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Of course not. She wouldn't be AOC if she did. Sacred. It's an honor that's given to people who have achieved something in American culture, in their pursuits. And obviously Rush Limbaugh, when it comes to talk radio, is the godfather of conservative talk radio. So that's achieving something. But I mean, just arguing the merits about Rush Limbaugh or whatever, it's just the idea that you hold everyone who received the Medal of Freedom up to, you know, a deserving recipient like Rosa Parks is just ridiculous. She's just such a silly little girl. It's so funny. And then in addition, she can't even I mean, she should perhaps try at least to think through a logical thread before uh, attempting to offer one. 
So on the one hand, he's undeserving of the award because he's a virulent racist. On the other hand, what she's really upset about is there wasn't a proper ceremony. It was undignified to do it in the gallery at the State of the Union address. So which is it? He doesn't deserve one unless it's at a formal ceremony to dignify the award? Oh, goodness gracious. But, hey, she continued. I don't really know how to characterize what she said next other than this is more commentary on the State of the Union address. See if you can decipher it. This whole State of the Union was like a game show where he was handing out prizes and surprises and reality TV moments. And um, this is exactly his political agenda. And, you know, this is it's not just for political reasons, but one of the reasons why I find it so frustrating that the rights of people of color are constantly negotiated and on the chopping block in politics in general um, is you know, this is this is one of the concerns, because when suddenly the rights are of immigrants are controversial or issues pertaining to black Americans are controversial, controversial? Um, but issues facing white Americans are not controversial and they're bread and butter issues. This is what starts to happen in our political discourse. What's and I think that um, we need to be very careful about this um, because about what? it's extraordinarily deliberate what and it's being done with a very specific agenda um what the, is the, the agenda? You know, this also is in line with the fact that trump decided to make a uh, kind of bogus criminal justice reform advertisement and the super bowl he's being very deliberate in trying to look Ooh, isn't that right deco yeah deco in trying to look like he's being you tell great. her for um, the black community, for communities of color, et cetera. Et cetera. Oh, the intellect is dizzying. By the way, uh, the bogus criminal justice reform, the First Step Act she's referring to, and his pardoning of Alice Johnson, that was the commercial, but the First Step Act, the criminal justice reform, is the centerpiece. 86% of members of the House voted for the First Step Act, including 134 Democrats. (laughs) So what, what was bogus about it? better check with your own party there, AOC. The gift that keeps on giving. Please, please, anybody that uh, runs in her circles, please continue to encourage her to post on Instagram all of her thoughts. Leave nothing out. I want to hear everything. Keep a microphone. Keep a phone up to her. I want more AOC. I cannot get enough of AOC. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Moving from AOC to Bloomberg, you think that would be a difficult transition, but it really isn't with some of the pronouncements from the past that are reverberating on the Bloomberg campaign in the present. You know, this is a guy who I will prefer this recent uh, audio that's been unearthed from uh, Aspen conference in 2015. This is, again, one of these uh, meetings of the uh, allegedly deep thinkers and uh, high minded intelligentsia types. I renew my prediction that there is not enough money in the world for Caesar Mike to sell his manure-smelling air freshener to the Democrat primary electorate in 2020. Uh, you heard what he said on Friday. We played it about the intelligentsia. This was from a meeting at Oxford. Here's a phrase that should be expunged from the English language. We the intelligentsia. It's right underneath, do you know who I am? If you think about it, we the intelligentsia, people who could make it into this room, 
We believe in a lot of things in terms of equality and protecting individual rights that make no sense to the vast bulk of people. They're not opposed to you having some rights, but there's a fundamental disconnect between us believing the rights of the individual come first and the general belief around the world, I think it's fair to say, that the rights of society comes first. And so um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the, uh, the bathroom issue in, in, in the United States. Anybody know what I'm talking about? If you want to know, is somebody a good salesman, give them the job of going to the Midwest and picking a town and selling to that town the concept that some man wearing a dress should be in a locker room with their daughter. If you can sell that, you can sell anything. I mean, they just look at you and they say, what on earth are you talking about? Right, because they possess common sense. You know who uh, buys that sales pitch? You, the intelligentsia. I mean, who's driving the trans insanity? Who's driving identitarian politics more generally? Those who attend the Aspen Institute conferences and those who can get in the room at Oxford based on not their merit, much less their intellect. The managerial elites that's who's driving these ridiculous policies. You can't sell in the heartland because people in the heartland and around the country in a lot of places are common sense realists, not dogmatic Marxists, not academics. So uh, dizzied by their own intellects, are they, that they adopt the dumbest ideas that are presented? Because, of course, they're trying to remake the world in their image. The vanguard class. We the intelligentsia. Well, Bloomberg's done it again, per what I was saying earlier. 2015 Aspen Institute Conference. Here's Mike Bloomberg. Caesar Mike, as I like to call him. I think it's better than little Mike. Caesar Mike, because that's really his inclination. Caesar Mike at the Aspen Institute talking about combating crime in New York City. 95% of your murders and murderers and murder victims fit one and all. You can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the time. They are male minorities, 15 to 21. That's true in New York. It's true in virtually every city. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of the people that get killed. She's going to be one of them. Spend the money for a lot of cops in the street. Put those cops where the crime is, which means in minority neighborhoods. So it's one of the unintended consequences is people say, oh my God, you are arresting kids for marijuana that are all minorities. Yes, that's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is to throw them against the wall and frisk them. And then they start, they say, oh, I don't want that. I don't want to get caught. So they don't bring the gun. They still have a gun, but they leave it at home. Yeah, so stop and frisk. Uh, that's five years ago. Now he's uh, offered a mea culpa both at the outset of his uh, candidacy and then uh, he uh, defiled himself before the man-hating shrews on The View to uh, provide a deeper explanation for his turnabout on stop and frisk. But there in 2015, he was a tough-talking big city mayor, wasn't he? Uh, he said it's a little bit hard to hear just the audio, uh, the video uh, of the speech Bloomberg had blocked, tried to keep it under wraps. But uh, of course, it gets out as these things do. So 95 percent of the murderers and murder victims fit one M.O. You can just Xerox a copy and hand it out to the cops, male minorities, 16 to 25. And the, I mean, the data is the data in big cities, including New York. But it's the rest of what he had to say, particularly in the context of his, you know, uh, 
I reflected upon the policy and it went too far. And that's when I pulled back and maybe we should have pulled back sooner. But the rest of what he had to say sort of gives you uh, insight into his mindset. So you have cops, you, you throw these kids up against the wall and you see if they've got a gun. It'd be a tough, you know, it's fine. You can you could couch that in a way that is more palatable if you were a proponent of the policy. But the problem is he's running around taking every position on every issue while uh, lecturing everybody for their moral failings to fold in. And so this is in part the point that uh, Bill McGurn makes over at the Journal. If it comes down to Caesar Mike versus Mannequin Pete as the alternative to Bernie, Caesar Mike has a pretty good argument to make as mayor of a city that's you know bigger than a lot of states, as opposed to the mayor of a town of 100,000 people that isn't uh, performing particularly well. As McGurn asked, the obvious question for Mannequin Pete, are you really telling us the model for America is South Bend, Indiana? Not a lot of people are going to buy that. Bloomberg has the potential to contrast his achievements with Mannequin Pete's failures, but you can't make that contrast when you're running around apologizing for what you were able to accomplish as mayor of New York. I don't begrudge him that. I mean, Bloomberg took office in 2002, so right after 9-11. During his 12 years, you know, he tacked on another four by rewriting the law in New York City so he could get a third term, just FYI. You know, ironic, Trump is going to violate the Constitution. He's not going to abide election results. He's going to try and amend the Constitution. Okay. Bloomberg actually did something akin to it. But during his 12 years, he uh, took on the failing education bureaucracy. He did expand charter schools, and good for him. He turned a $4.5 billion deficit into a $2.5 billion surplus. You did see uh, New York City crime brought to historic lows under Bloomberg. So this mayoral matchup, if you want to say, you know, we've got a model at the local level that should be scaled nationally, Bloomberg actually has an uh, an argument to make where, Mannequin Pete really doesn't have much of one. But when you're uh, apologizing for the approach that you took, whether it's on taking on the educational bureaucracy to expand choice or getting more aggressive with uh, areas that there's a high concentration of violent crime activity, what have you got to say in response? I'm Dan Proff. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Time now for another reason why Dan Prof is single. Yeah, and uh, this a uh, couple of examples of why Dan Prof is single. Remember, this is a segment for those just getting acclimated to it. My perspective, why I'm single. I mean, the females, the distaff side has uh, plenty probably of reasons that explain why I'm single from their perspective. But this is where I get to have my say. A Detroit man recovering after a woman he was kissing bit off his tongue. Yolette Wedgworth, 52, and the man were engaged in a consensual kiss. All the paperwork had been signed. She asked him not to put his tongue in her mouth, unlike Cousin Eddie. He did it anyway, and to punish him, she bit off an inch of his tongue. Police responding to the incident, finding the man bleeding from his mouth, missing that inch. They did recover it in his apartment. No word uh, yet on whether the uh, bobbit-like reattachment was successful. 
Uh, she was taken into custody. The uh, prosecutor saying, I believe this is the first case of this nature in my 27 years in the prosecutor's office. Sure, every day uh, brings new experiences. There's no question about it. That's an example. Now, I, I get it. She said, don't do that. I don't clearly I don't like it. He did it anyway. Couldn't you just pull away, pull away and slap him and even be on board for that? The uh, deformation seems a bit aggressive, as did this Florida woman, the Clearwater, Florida, Florida woman responding to her husband's request for separation by shooting him with a stun gun. She was arrested, uh, 69 years old, at a Clearwater mobile home charged with aggravated domestic battery. They got into an argument on Sunday morning after he told her he wanted to end their marriage of nine years. She pulled out a taser and uh, didn't need the uh, the barbed darts because she did it at close range, stunned him several times. She admitted it, claiming she acted in self-defense. Hmm. I believe, by the way, Clearwater, Florida, of course, that reminds me of the Scientologists. I think that's the same way they keep people in that cult if they want to divorce or they want to go back to their family or they want to get out of the van. But anyway, uh, Pamela Carr is her name. Yolette Wedgworth, uh, the uh, woman in Detroit. I'll tell you what, caught the story yesterday. For Valentine's Day, the San Antonio Zoo, about to be the most well-funded zoo in America. $5 this Friday, Valentine's Day. You can name a cockroach and have, uh, for an X and have an animal, you know, reptile or something, eat that cockroach. For $20 more, you can uh, have a rat named after whoever whichever X you want, and have, you know, like a boa or some snake, reptile, eat the rat. I'm just thinking, number one, I'm going to just in in honor of these uh, fallen brothers in Clearwater and Detroit, maybe I'll spend five bucks for a cockroach named Yolette and a cockroach named Pamela in their honor as they recover from their injuries. But I also think maybe a bigger, the San Antonio Zoo, maybe go bigger too, a few hundred bucks. I I don't know how much this would cost, but I'm just thinking, This is all circle of life, Simba type stuff. This is all animal kingdom stuff, right? The natural order of things. So what about like a zebra that gets mauled by a lion? You know, really ripping apart the the animal. This is Dan Profton. Now you know why I'm single. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, yesterday before his rally in New Hampshire, President Trump sat down for an interview with Fox Business's Trish Regan. And uh, she asked him about uh, the coronavirus and uh, the administration's posture towards China. President's assessment on how well China is doing to combat the spread of that virus. Well, I think China is very, you know, professionally run in the sense that they have everything under control. I really believe they are going to have it under control fairly soon. You know, in April, supposedly, it dies with a hotter weather, and that's a beautiful date to look forward to. But China, I can tell you, is working very hard. We're working with them. You know, we just sent some of our best people over the World Health Organization, and uh, a lot of them are composed of our people. They're fantastic, and they're now in China. 
and we're helping them out. We're in very good shape. We have 11 cases, and most of them are getting better very rapidly. I think they'll all be better. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate his Norman Vincent Peelism, both in the direction of the virus as well as the Chinese communists. But and of course, this is against the backdrop of Trump trying to negotiate a phase two deal with China and keep their commitment on the. $200 billion for the ag products that they're supposed to buy from U.S. farmers and so on and so forth. But, of course, the reality is that uh, what do Chinese communists do? What do all communists do? They lie and they obfuscate. Gordon Chang, who's a bit of an expert in the space, the author of the book The Coming Collapse of China, was on with uh, Tucker Carlson last night and pointed out that you can't believe the numbers coming out of China in terms of the number of infected, the number of dead. And we've been talking about that for the better part of the last couple of weeks. One, they're, they're in the business of deliberate falsification to put the regime in the best light possible. And two, according to Chang, they've just lost the ability to pick up corpses. I mean, not to be uh, not to have gallows humor about it, but it's like a Monty Python sketch. He said, uh, Gordon Chang. So really what we have right now is they are completely overwhelmed. They're not able to keep accurate statistics. So what we're witnessing is essentially a breakdown in government and keeping accurate statistics is a very minor part of their priorities right now. Sure, their priorities are Potemkin initiatives like this uh, spraying of downtown Wuhan that uh, was on Twitter, these trucks going around spraying bleach on the streets as some sort of uh, effort to disinfect and control the spread when public health officials say, well, that's that's just a show of doing something that actually has nothing to do with stopping the spread, much less treating those infected. For more on this topic and a few others, we're pleased to be joined by Tom Rogan, foreign policy and national security commentary writer for Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. And uh, Tom, you've written about uh, President Xi and the Chinese communist handling of the coronavirus outbreak. It uh, reminded you of uh, another Politburo from a bygone era. Great to be with you. I think your assessment there is on the money in the sense that if we look at the comparison points to what we actually know has happened, uh, whether that be the effort to intimidate doctors who were trying to raise the alarm bell early on, uh, whether that be the absence of the senior leadership, Xi Jinping, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, the leader of China uh, in particular, and Mikhail Gorbachev at Parison Point, uh, but more broadly in terms of refusal to be transparent either to people on the ground, and we saw this early on in Wuhan, where the local health authorities was telling people, don't worry, really just go about your normal lives, maybe wear a mask. Um, And obviously in Chernobyl, where the evacuation procedure was ramshackle at best, there is a trend here of communist authoritarian regimes, and particular communist regimes, acting uh, to protect the party above the people. And and I think that is an important thing we shouldn't get uh, away from in this uh, story. Sure. I mean, you remember the uh, (laughs) famous statements coming out of the Soviet Politburo, Comrade Brezhnev has a slight cold. He was dead on a slab, right? I mean, you you know you're not getting the full story from them, and you sort of have to build that into the price. And also, and more seriously, this is a regime for whom disappear is a verb. And you mentioned the doctors and other human rights activists who were reporting on this early on, trying to essentially be whistleblowers. Now the reports are that some of those individuals have disappeared off social media and perhaps the face of the planet. Yeah. And, and you know, they deleted uh, news articles from our web pages where a Wuhan newspaper was reporting on the scale of the problem. So, you know, this is a regime that has an intimate relationship with, you know, controlling people's lives, taking away their freedom on a whim. And that has formed an integral part of the regime's response to this, because for the regime, this isn't simply about 
you know, stopping the spread of the virus as much as they would like that. It is about ensuring that Xi Jinping, what he calls his China dream uh, or the Chinese dream policy, which sits primarily on the idea of him as this great visionary leader, uh, isn't damaged by the response to this crisis. So, you know, the, the political side of this is as important to the regime as uh, the public health side of it. I wanted to uh, get your take on another matter. Your uh, colleague Paul Bedard wrote about it uh, yesterday. Uh, the focus was on the firing of uh, Vindman and his brother from the National Security Council, the recall of Gordon Sunland, the ambassador to the EU, after the impeachment trial uh, announced over the, the weekend. Uh, but uh, Paul Bedard, uh, officials confirmed that Trump and National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien have cut 70 positions inherited from former President Barack Obama who had fattened the staff at NSC to 200. Some were loaners from other agencies sent back. Others have left government work. Boy, uh, I, I would say in response to this, it's about damn time. It's about damn time to get control of your personnel and thus your policy coming out of important agencies like the National Security Council and uh, stop allowing uh, actors within these agencies who are adverse to the goals of the administration free reign. I take a slightly different view, I think, because of the position as a military officer, there was probably a better way to handle that. Um, but in terms of civilian appointees, Sondland, and, and the shrinking of the NSC, you know, the NSC is supposed to essentially be a, you know, filtering house that is delivering products from the Pentagon, the intelligence community, State Department, putting it um, in front of the president, helping him manage the executive level uh, response to a foreign policy challenge. And... I think the Obama administration bloated the National Security Council, partly to to sort of avoid uh, having to make decisions. And and I think that's that's why I'm supportive of shrinking, is that, you know, ultimately it should be a a well-oiled machine that is making, enabling the president to make decisions quickly and correctly. And where it's too big, and too many people are counting in in decisions, you obviously raise the concern that the president has of you know, people countermanding his decisions, etc. But, but more broadly, I think you slow down the efficiency uh, of um, the national security and foreign policy. And so, you know, we have a lot of people in the State Department and the other agencies um, who are filtering, pushing products through to the White House. It doesn't necessarily make sense uh, for us to have you know, hundreds of people running around the White House uh, doing their own thing. I mean, you want a, you want a speedy process, I think. And uh, speaking of uh, the, the, the matters on which you seek the advice and counsel of uh, senior level people at National Security Council and other intelligence agencies, military as well, the uh, decision to greenlight the strike on General Qasem Soleimani, that was an issue in Friday night's New Hampshire debate between the Democrats who were still uh, scurrying for votes in New Hampshire uh, and uh, uh, none of the uh, the Democrats suggested that they would have greenlighted that strike. Buttigieg and Biden and uh, Bernie all passed, saying that, that they didn't believe that it was the right call. And you uh, offered an assessment of their uh, their rejection of that uh, of that decision that President Trump made. Yeah, I mean, look, there are. Um arguments to be made that it could say that it was the wrong call in terms of American influence in Iraq or whatever. But I thought what was striking was that you have with President Trump a pretty obvious, deliberate, understandable policy posture, which is if you are, a.k.a. Qasem Soleimani, plotting attacks against American lives, 
and you don't stop doing it and you continue to escalate, we're going to use our levers of power to stop you. Um, that's a pretty clear message to send. And the Iranian regime, to a degree, has understood it. It has altered their calculations to how much they can push the United States, at least in the short term. The Democrats, what frustrated me about the Democratic debate responses was that it wasn't simply, you know, there was, there was no offering of a sort of nuance, okay, here's what it might be for work and long-term stuff, you know, something at least intellectually. International law matters and we have to do things with our eyes and this means we'll go and assassinate people, um, you know, just, just sort of dancing around on really kind of silly, irrelevant issues that were talking about being you know, keeping people safe. I think people have a right to demand position in President Trump's clarity of position uh, and the sort of convoluted, you know, almost, I don't I, I know, but almost European style of disblobiating on issues of importance rather than addressing them, you know, at the jugular. That, that is pretty striking, and I think Democrats embarrass themselves with their responses. He is Tom Rogan, foreign policy and national security commentary writer for Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. Tom, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. So this uh, theory is making the rounds, theory about uh, electoral politics that's sort of uh, being uh, popularized by uh, a young professor at Christopher Newport University in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia named Rachel Beitkoffer. The theory builds on the notion of negative partisanship. That's dynamic in our partisanship. We talked about in this show, negative partisanship. I don't necessarily affiliate with the Republican Party, but I dislike the Democrats more. Uh, I don't necessarily affiliate with the Democrat Party, but I dislike the Republicans more. And that's what animates my vote or explains my sort of default allegiance to one party over the other. Well, Bitcoffer takes it to the next level in suggesting that there's no such thing as the swing voter. The swing voter is a myth. The swing voter, to the extent they used to exist is now an extinct political species. Uh, there's disagreement about her her theory. It held up in uh, 2018. She was pretty close to the number on the n- number of seats that the Democrats picked up in the House, and this is why she gained some popularity, as did her theory. But there's a lot of other experts in the space that uh, point out that her theory doesn't explain some examples of Obama voters in 12 voting for Trump in 2016 in not insignificant numbers in certain regions of the country. And I'm sort of in that camp. I think negative partisanship is real, but her dogma takes it too far. There are other factors. Negative partisanship may even be the most predominant factor, but there are still other factors that have impact on the margins. And when you're talking about presidential elections that are often decided by a few hundred thousand votes spread over a few states, the margins matter. For more on this topic, as well as a look ahead to 
November. We're pleased to be joined by Kyle Kondik, who's a managing editor of Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball and University of Virginia Center for Politics Director of Communications. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. If I'm remembering that Politico piece properly, uh, I believe Sabato was quoted in responding to Bitcoffer's theory. Um, what, what, what's your take on it? negative partisanship explains everything? I know Rachel and, and, and like Rachel, uh, you know, I also think that it sometimes happens with these articles. Uh, you know, sometimes someone's views are sort of taken, made to be a little bit more dramatic than they are. I think that Rachel probably doesn't think there aren't any swing voters, but I think she's also focused on this idea of the kind of differential turnout in, in different kinds of elections. And so like in 2018, it's, you know, more of a democratic leaning turnout, which I think is true. But, you know, at the same time, I, I, I have kind of a mixed view on it, I think that you do, in that, like, if you look at the state of Illinois and you look at what happened in 2016 in um some of the uh, suburban, exurban uh, congressional districts, specifically Illinois 6 and Illinois 14, you know, those districts were drawn by Democrats to basically safely elect Republicans. And all of a sudden, Republican, uh, a, lot of, a lot of Romney voters in those places, I think, had to have either voted third party or voted for Clinton. Right. You know, at the same time, you had Illinois 12 in the southern part of the state, Illinois 17, uh, which is Sherry Bustos' congressional district. You know, those are places that went from Obama to Trump. And you don't see a, a, that sort of dramatic change with just changes in turnout. I don't think you have to have voters, you know, actually actively changing their minds. And, you know, then we, then we saw that, uh, you know, Democrats ended up picking up Illinois 6 and Illinois 14 in the 2018 midterms. And so, you know, I think I think it's kind of a, a mix here. But, you know, there are voters who change their minds, but there are also, uh, you know, differences in turnout and whatnot from year to year. At the top level, I mean, of course, the, the top of the ticket uh, always matters uh, significantly, if, uh, you know, predominantly. You suggest that um, Trump uh, is what's going to matter for Republicans keeping the Senate and having any shot at taking the House. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've seen, in, I think, in, in recent uh, over the course of the last several decades that there used to be a lot more ticket splitting for president than for House. And I think you saw a lot of that in the South. You saw, you know, moderate to conservative Democrats getting elected in the South, but also those places voting Republican for president. Uh, one of the great stories of American politics over the last several decades is that those kinds of moderate to conservative Democrats have been wiped out and replaced with conservative Republicans. At the same time, you had kind of liberal moderate northeastern Midwestern Republicans who represented places, Democrats who went for president, those folks have largely gone away as well. And uh, I think, you know, what what, that, what Republicans are hoping to do is that, the, you know, the Democrats control 30 congressional districts that Donald Trump won for president. Um, the Republicans control, control only five that voted for Clinton. And I think what Republicans are hoping is that the House vote and the presidential vote are essentially tied at the hip. And Trump wins again and carries Republicans to victory in a lot of those districts that, that Trump won in 2016 and very well may win in 2020. Now, history suggests that, you know, we would expect there to be, uh, you know, some differential between the House and the presidential vote. But I think part of the reason why the Republicans have remained so so tied to Trump is because, in some sense, their only way to win the House back is if he does well and they need to do things that essentially try to make the president as strong as possible. And that includes supporting him on things like like this recent you know, impeachment battle. With respect to the path for Trump and, uh, by extension, congressional Republicans, you know, the conventional wisdom is it goes through the suburbs. Is it really the suburbs like I mean, like the well to do suburbs? You mentioned Illinois six. Or is it more like the exurbs, you know, just outside sort of the uh, suburban footprint, the ex the uh, more middle income exurbs like, say, in Illinois 14? 
Yeah, I would say Illinois 14 is certainly a better target for Republicans than uh, than Illinois 6 is. First of all, it's just it's a district that Trump carried, whereas he didn't carry Illinois 6. Um, if you go throughout the country, uh, there, there are a couple districts in northeastern Pennsylvania that are really kind of more like uh, small to medium-sized towns or even kind of rural areas that Democrats hold. Um, the dist- there, there are a few districts in Iowa that, that fit that classification. Uh, and so I think you're onto something in suggesting that while we talk about the suburbs so much in politics, some of these actual districts you would not really classify as being truly suburban. You'd maybe call them exurban or even more like kind of uh, small-town rural America. And if you were, if you were taking a snapshot uh, today and just holding it and saying today is Election Day, uh, wh- what are the chances that uh, – what are the realistic chances Republicans have to take the House? Because I, I talked to a well-known a former Republican member of Congress last year, and he said you know, privately he didn't think there was a chance to win the House. Now, this was before the impeachment imbroglio and so much else that's come to pass. Things change, can change quickly. But as we stand here today, is the possibility, if, you know, if, if Trump were at where he is today on Election Day, is the possibility for Republicans to take the House, is it 50-50? Is it 1-3? in three? Is it 1-10? in 10? I'd give the Democrats a you know, decent chance to retain the House. I don't know what number I'd peg on it, you know, 75, 80 percent or something. Okay. But I also think that there has been, particularly recently, just because Democrats have been done so well at fundraising compared to, to, to House Republicans, that essentially that there's no shot for the Republicans to take the House back. And I don't really feel that way. But again, part of it is, is based on the strength of the, of the president. And I look at the, the presidential race as basically still kind of a kind of a 50-50 proposition. So it's, it's dependent on Trump winning and I think Trump doing maybe better than he did uh, in, 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 20, in 2016. But uh, the House is, you know, the House is still competitive. Again, I think there's been this, this thought that, oh, well, it's, it's not going to flip at all. And I don't feel that way necessarily, but I do think Democrats are favored. He is Kyle Kondik. He's managing editor of Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball and the University of Virginia Center for Politics's Director of Communications. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. sun is and I'm crazy about you, baby, can't you see? I'd be so delighted if you would come with me. On the wings of love, up and above the clouds, the only way to fly is on the wings of love. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We've talked about this remarkable study. Uh, now we're going to talk to the chief executive officer of the organization that produced it. It's called The Secret Shame How America's Most Progressive Cities betray their commitment to educational opportunity for all. And what the uh, researchers at Brightbeam, which is this nonprofit education reform organization, what they found looking at some of the most progressive big cities in America is that the gap in academic achievement between whites and minorities is significantly higher than it is in more conservative cities, controlling for a lot of variables that will go through. For example, San Francisco. 70% 70% of white students are in math, only 12% of, uh, are, are proficient 
in math, 70%. Only 12% of black students, 58-point gap. In Washington, D.C., 80% of white students proficient in math, 18% of black students, 62-point gap. Overall, the average among the dozen progressive cities that they looked at, 41-point black-white gap in math, 40-point gap in reading. Is that living up to the promise of Brown v. Board of Education? I don't think so. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Chris Stewart, Chief Executive Officer of Brightbeam. Chris, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. And thanks for having me. What, uh, you know, it's such an interesting study. Um, what prompted you uh, and the researchers at Brightbeam to look at this, you know, through somewhat of a political lens to say, let's look at cities that are smaller urban centers in red states, more conservative, and let's compare those to the big urban metropolises around the country and see how the, uh, the schools are stacking up in terms of outcomes. You know, the political frame really came to us by accident. I had been doing a lot of traveling nationwide. I generally do a lot of drop-ins to communities and investigate schools and talk to teachers and parents about education in their cities. And I started noticing a trend in a lot of the bigger cities that I would go to, which were largely progressive cities, Seattle, Boston, Oakland, even you know Austin. Lots of different cities that I would go to had these big progressive infrastructures, large budgets, large numbers of college-educated people, big booming economies, lots of things going for them. And the one thing that would be a thread through all of them was that their gaps, racialized gaps in educational outcomes were really bad. And I couldn't get my mind around it. Like, why in these places that have so much going big, you know, cultural centers and, and large amounts of, you know, amenities, but yet the schools just couldn't uh, deliver for kids of color. And when we looked at it, we started with an MIT study of, I think, something like 50 cities that ranged between conservative and progressive. And as a thought exercise, we took the top 12 progressive and the top 12 conservative cities out of there and matched them up to see, you know, what what the contrast would be. And um, it was pretty daunting to look at and think that the cities that do the most talking about equity, do the most talking about trying to make a society that works equally well for everyone, we're actually having a negative effect on kids of color when it came to education. And let's go through the, you know, the obvious responses you're going to get. Well, that's probably because the bigger progressive cities are more racially diverse. So you have bigger populations of minorities. And that was that's what explains the bigger gap. Yeah, I don't want to get lost in, you know, kind of the egghead stuff because I want the common public to understand the report and the findings. But the bottom line is we had multiple researchers run it many ways, including against things like uh, income inequality and composition of the student body, poverty, all of the things that you would think would be the normal kind of responses of folks. There was no way to explain it away. Our researchers came back to us and said that, you know, we've ran it several ways and there's just no way to think away or wish away the correlation between progressive municipal government and the underperformance of kids of color in their school systems. And since the report has been out, of course, as you would expect, we've received a ton of pushback, especially by people that are uh, a bit insulted that, that progressive cities might get this type of criticism. And we've added the factors that they've asked us to go back and run. And in the end, in eight ways that we ran it, only one way made a difference when they added new factors for us. And that one way didn't make it completely go away. It just diminished the, the correlation between progressive politics and poor performance. And what was that what was that way that diminished it? There was one way with how we how we cut income 
inequality. And I think it comes from the Brookings Institutes, the way that they have a rare way um, to, to measure income inequality in a city. I can't really remember the technical de- details. Okay, but it was, but it was income different. inequality related. That's exactly what it was. But it was the way that they, they have a way of, of measuring it that's different than all the other, um, than the federal government and other ways that we looked at. Uh, I, w- I want to uh, delve uh, deeper into this and the takeaways, uh, uh, the important takeaways, not just the mythology. When we come back, we're talking to Chris Stewart. He's the CEO of Brightbeam, produced this study about how America's most progressive cities are betraying their commitment to educational opportunity for all, particularly compared with more conservative urban centers. Very interesting. More with Chris Stewart after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Chris Stewart, CEO of Brightbeam, talking about his organization's study, the correlation that explains the difference in school performance between progressive cities and more conservative cities is their progressivism. Uh, And in progressive cities, minority students have a larger achievement gap in reading and math than do minority students in more conservative cities. And again, I want to emphasize correlation, not causation, which you do emphasize in your study. I'm, I'm quick to point out. But so what are the takeaways? What's happening in more conservative cities that is not that that is or is not happening in more progressive cities that may help explain this correlation? You know, we're struggling with finding what those things would be. One of the reasons that we didn't make any policy recommendations was that we didn't nail down the smoking gun to say, you know, conservative cities are doing much better with sticking to a core curriculum or doing much better with, you know, with the way that they form collective bargaining agreements with their teachers. Or There wasn't any one thing that we can land on. So we thought it was pretty interesting to tell people just whatever the problem may be, you have to at least first admit that it's correlated to um, the progressivism of a city's municipal government. There's just some things you can't get away with. Like in, in California, for instance, San Francisco public schools exist in the wealthiest county in California, and they have among the poorest outcomes with black children in the entire state of California. So California is an entirely progressive state, mostly with some pockets that, you know, pockets of conservatism, but in an entirely progressive state, it's the most progressive city with the most amount of money, the most amount of resources that's actually doing the absolute worst with kids of color, specifically with black children. And and, 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 and what, I just want to point out, too, I mean, when I'm sort of talking around it. I mentioned a couple of examples, as you're mentioning San Francisco. But overall, all the cities you looked at, I mean, the difference in graduation rates and reading and math proficiency is statistically significant. We're not talking about a couple of points. We're talking about a real yeah, difference. It's a real difference. It, it's an outstanding difference in these places. It's unexplainable. So the reason we didn't come up with a lot of uh, thou shalt like to make policy prescriptions for people. It's basically to say the political class in those cities are getting a free pass. They don't even have a plan for making change. They're living often on their progressive values and progressive reputation. And there is no one even demanding that they have a plan that year over year they do better. Yeah. And that could be one of the things that's different in their cities is the presumption that they are progressive might be allowing them to have a free pass to just hide their problems. 
Well, that's interesting, too. I mean, I guess we shouldn't be that surprised by this in terms of maybe the distribution of the results, but depending on your political perspective. But the idea that culture matters, that the cultural milieu in which you live and which informs how core civic institutions like school systems operate, of course that has impact. Yeah, I mean, it has an impact from the top to the bottom, too, right? At the top of all of these places is a mayor that brags about world-class cities. There's a city council that brags about their liberal values. There's a school board that passes one wacky policy after another that has everything to do with progressivism uh, culture that has nothing to do with academics and has nothing to do with outcomes and standards and having to sing for your dinner, having to actually deliver on all these values that people say that they have. Uh, one of the uh, arguments, of course, and you were sort of referencing it by describing San Francisco, the arguments we hear it in Chicago all the time where I'm at, uh, but you hear it in big cities. Uh, throughout the country. Well, you know, you need to invest in schools. You're hearing that in the context of the presidential campaign now, invest in schools, invest in schools, which means more money, even though in real dollars, you know, we we double the per pupil expenditure at the K through 12 lever, uh, level about every 20 to 30 years in this country. And we're not seeing uh, correspondingly better outcomes. But, but that's it. That's when the most recent Chicago teacher strike, it was not just salary increases for the teachers, but also more staffing, Uh, wraparound services. It was all focused on the adults in the system, but with the idea that more and better paid adults in the system will produce better results. And nowhere did I see in any of the things that you had going on in Chicago, anybody get down to brass tacks about uh, instructional quality, the quality of education that kids get in the classroom, all the things that you just ticked off and listed, and, and many of the others that were in those, in that battle were things that um, have nothing directly related to holding the system accountable for the level of, of the quality, the classroom experience that kids get. Do they have the best teachers? Are they getting the best teaching? Do they have, um, for instance, evidence-based uh, reading practices? What we all know right now nationally is there's a large national discussion that basically says schools don't know how to teach reading and they've ignored the science of what works for years because people don't like to teach the way in which science tells them that kids will actually get it. I mean, a lot of those things you just named are all about the adults. I mean, certainly there is central planning that goes on in K through 12 systems, uh, public school systems in the conservative cities. I mean, it's central planning, too, but maybe it's a little bit more malleable than the central planning in these progressive cities. Just one theory. And I'll give you an example in Chicago, since I know that system the best. Uh, We've known for 30 years that the best place to teach foreign languages is in the primary grades. Most foreign languages are taught in the Chicago public school system in high school. We've known for about the same time that kids best learn science in this way, in in this uh, progression in high school physical science class first, then chemistry, and then biology. But in the Chicago public school system, all the freshmen, freshmen, their first science class, biology. And the answer to why we continue to do things we know are not in the best interest of how children learn is because that's the way we've always done them. And maybe we have a little bit of that's the way we've always done them because it's convenient for the adults culture in some of these places. I mean, what you just listed, I think, should be um, a rally cry. The, the, the point that we wanted to get home with the report is it is time for the, the thinking, average, working class public to put their uh, political leadership on the hook to, one, have a plan, two, to have it be publicly monitored and understood by the public, and three, to lead or leave, meaning year over year, if there isn't progress, people need to actually be um, invited to be successful elsewhere. You can't have leaders who year over year over year 
lord over systems that make no progress and they have no plan for change. I hope all of your listeners take it to heart that what you just said actually should be a rally cry. Are you teaching the best way that we know you should, kids should be taught? Do your systems make system and if uh, make sense? And if they don't make sense, why is it that they perpetuate year over year over year without anyone ever calling the question on them? I mean, what you just said to me is very distressing in, yeah. your, in your local system. Now. Yeah, I'm, tell me about it. And then, and you know, and it's always, what's the response you get? We're working on it. Chris Stewart, Chief Executive Officer at Breitbeam, uh, Breitbeam.com. I'm going to uh, tweet out to his report, The Secret Shame, his organization's report. Uh, read it and share it. The Secret Shame, How America's Most Progressive Cities Betray Their Commitment to Educational Opportunity for All. Chris, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Proft Show. When I was 17... I drank some very good beer. I drank some very good beer. I purchased with a fake ID. My name was Brian McKee. I stayed up listening to Queen when I was 17. I'll tell you nothing like uh, Homer Simpson doing Frank Sinatra, huh? The chairman. Good stuff. And uh, it recalls two things. One, little known fact. Atomic bomb tests conducted by the U.S. military in the 1950s found that beer, as well as soft drinks, remain drinkable after a nuclear explosion. So in the event a nuclear holocaust befalls us, uh, it is worth knowing, per the results from Operation Teapot 1955, with cans and bottles of beer and soft drinks placed in positions ranging from two-tenths of a mile to two miles away from the blast zone, that you can continue to enjoy a cold multi beverage. That is good news. And uh, this is, boy, even better news if you were lucky enough to have this occur to you. Uh, this is like mana, uh, like mana from heaven. Uh, this from the New York Post, a, a defunct Indian bar adjacent to an apartment building. This is in the country of India. Turn the resident's water supply into one big mixed drink after its leftover booze was disposed of nearby and accidentally seeped into a drinking water well. So this is sort of uh, natural moonshining, if you will. Uh, And the result, this multi-unit building next to this uh, bar that had closed, 18 families in this apartment building did not have access to clean drinking water, but they had something better. Their faucets were flowing with booze. Now, you got to keep it away from the school-aged children. Uh, sure, maybe it's not the healthiest way to deliver a uh, Manhattan uh, or an old-fashioned. Uh, I grant you that. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the families, the old experience was very traumatic for us. Uh, the, to remedy the situation, 1,300 gallons of clean water were delivered to the residents as a... Uh, uh, one official acknowledged, Indian official acknowledged the error. And, uh, and I do appreciate that. And obviously you need the clean drinking 
potable water for the kids and for the adults and so on and so forth. But, you know, I, I just I just hope the booze, I just hope the booze didn't go to waste. Mmm, beer. Mmm, booze. This is Dan Prof. All you gotta do is put a drink in my Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at Dan Proft show.com on twitter at dan prof show and at dan Proft and the award or the oscar to be specific excuse me the oscar for most ignorant statement of the evening goes to julia Riker. julia Riker, come on up julia Riker, co-director of american company working people have it harder and harder these days and we believe that Things will get better when workers of the world unite. Oh, right. Hat tip, Karl Marx. Wonderful, wonderful. And he, here's the thing about that documentary category. One Child Nation wasn't nominated. Wasn't even nominated. This is the best documentary of the year. Maybe The Guardians. And we've talked to the documentary The Guardians about uh, the Guardian scam in Nevada, but that's going on around the country. Remarkable documentary. But One Child Nation about China's grotesque one-child policy for 35 years. Not even nominated. Why would that be, I wonder? Have we forgotten that, I mean, Hollywood and China is the moral equivalent to NBA in China, right? Remember how they scrub Hollywood films of anything offensive to Chinese communists so that they can market them in that market? Anything to bow before our commercial masters, right, LeBron James and uh, Hollywood elites? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Andrew Clavin, Hollywood screenwriter and novelist, also podcaster. Another Kingdom, his podcast is in season three. Andrew, can you uh, crack the code for us here why a pro-life movie... Was it nominated for Best Documentary? <laughs> it's a mystery. But, you know, I think we do have to celebrate. Just the, it's amazing that the Obamas could go right from the White House into the movie business and win an Oscar on their first time out. That's how I good they are. The, the, the talent there, the talent there. Is just, you know, this is, it is, it is a wonder, the speeches were wonderful uh, in their leftism, but even more wonderful was the fact that people simply didn't watch. It was the lowest-rated Oscar award ceremony ever. It's become a complete irrelevance. Nobody cares who wins the award. You know, these people are there to look good and entertain us. That's their purpose. And, and, I, and I love them for that. I love the fact that the women are so beautiful when they walk down the red carpet. And, they, you know, Brad Pitt is a wonderful actor. 
I could Pretty. care less what he thinks and yeah. who, or who he votes for. You know, I, I wanted to. I mean, just a, a point of order. If I could just rally to the defense of the Obamas for a minute, since you uh, since you slimed them so <laughs> did mercilessly. You, did you feel I was being cynical there. Yes, uh, I, you know, just to be fair, Hugo Chavez did not have a submission uh, documentary submission this year, so you know, it was time for time for some fresh blood. Is, is my yeah, only point. <laughs> I thought they should have just given the award to Karl Marx, you know. I, I think <laughs> Posthumously, yeah. <laughs> Lifetime Achievement having, Award, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> most people, most people slaughtered for no reason. I, you know, I also liked uh, Joaquin Phoenix's uh, speech uh, uh, condemning milk. I mean, that was like, yes, <laughs> that was, you know, the po- yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, try, hey, hey, Andrew, uh, try black coffee for once. <laughs> Well, you're, you're pilfering the, the cream from the calves, and I felt yeah. so, I, I drink my coffee black. I felt so virtuous during that speech. I was sitting there going like, "I am okay," you know, "I'm an okay person." Well, the disappointment uh, I felt uh, as a bit of a Joaquin Phoenix fan, uh, going back to Walk the Line, certainly, uh, is uh, that it turns out that Joker he, he wasn't much of a stretch for him. That he was just sort of <laughs> that's that's who he is. Uh, you know, minus the violence, perhaps, but uh, in terms, certainly the sort of um, the, uh, the the monologue and and the uh, yeah the, the monologue the the the, uh, the the soliloquies out loud that he provided was was really really something to behold. I think what they need to do is put Ricky Gervais's uh, speech that yes. he made at the other award ceremony. Put that in front of every award ceremony because he Ricky Gervais is a liberal. He agrees with most of what these guys think. That all he was pointing out to them was that. <laughs> was that they are not the spokesmen. They are not our moral guides. This is a town that let Harvey Weinstein run wild for 20, 30 years. They, they really have, they're flying private jets while they're preaching climate change. These are hypocritical, very wealthy, elite people who, who are some of the most gifted genetically in the world and the most blessed in living in this capitalist country where they can make millions doing what they do. They really should just you know, say thank you and sit down. <laughs> that would be nice. Uh, speaking of theatrics, I wanted to, as a, as a, a man of stage and screen and, and the podcast world, I wanted to get your take on the uh, pomp and circumstance of the president's State of the Union address, particularly conferring the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom to Rush in the gallery. That was a moment. I was, you know, it's funny. Last night I was sitting around with the guys at the Daily Wire, and I just said to them that was one of the best political moments I can remember. I, it was such. First of all, it took so much uh, pure Trumpian guts to do it. To just say, you know, yes, you know, you, you know, remember Obama? They, they've given that award to Robert De Niro. They've given it to Barbara Streisand. They've given it to highly politicized figures uh, who are talented and, you know, maybe deserved the medal. To sit and suddenly say Rush Limbaugh, who transformed and not only transformed an industry, let's face it, he created an industry. I mean, there wouldn't be the kind of podcast there are today without Rush. There wouldn't be even the conversation that we have, that you and I are having right this minute, is in some ways created in a space that Rush made. So he has really been a consequential person. And the fact that the left doesn't like the consequences is, is fine. Obviously, they disagree with him. But to not understand that this is a guy who kept it, the conservative conversation alive when a major, major push to silence that conversation, to cancel it, to censor it was going on. And he did it, you know, he did that through courage. He did it through steadfastness. He did it through wit. And as he would himself, he always jokes, uh, talent on loan from God. He is one of, I grew up in radio. My father was a very famous DJ in New York. 
Rush Limbaugh was the most talented broadcaster I ever, I've ever heard. He is the most talented broadcaster I've ever heard. And it was just a beautiful thing to me. And only Trump would have the courage to do it. You know, in the same way that it's Trump who went to the uh, March for Life and spoke there, it's Trump who moved the embassy to Jerusalem. All these things that people have promised, it takes a guy with the skin of a turtle shell to do this stuff. And he has withstood, Trump has withstood the onslaught of the press. And that is what makes him so powerful is that he does not care what they say about him. It's been, it's been an amazing thing to see. You know, Trump, a lot of people I know, a lot of never-Trumpers, they, they stumble on the fact that Trump's not a very nice guy. But I think that that's just what it took. That's just what it took to change the conversation where a guy like Rush can get the awards and honor he deserves as he moves into this period of illness, you know, which, whereas I think when we want to give him the tributes that he deserves. It was a great moment. It was a genuinely great moment. Speaking of building your own castle, this is something that you talk a lot about when it comes to conservatives and uh, movie making and storytelling through all the communication channels that are available uh, I wonder if you think that uh, there may be some progress on that front for conservatives. And I point to not only uh, your movie, Gosnell, last year, but also uh, but, uh, the uh, Clarence Thomas documentary that's out now, the success of Abby Johnson's movie, Unplanned. Is there uh, a growing recognition among conservatives of the need to build our own castle, as it were? Yes, but it's growing too slowly. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't mean to be negative because we've made since I started talking about this maybe 15 years ago, it, we've made tremendous progress. We've made it through the internet and through all these back channels, which I think is important. My, you mentioned my podcast, Another Kingdom, which is a fantasy suspense story that we told over three seasons. That was getting hundreds of thousands of downloads, which meant if I just published it as a novel and it got that many, it would have been on the New York Times bestseller list. It probably would have been number one on the New York Times bestseller list. What's missing is the cultural machinery that moves that out into a greater consciousness. If if I were a liberal, Another Kingdom would certainly have sold to the movies by now. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it would have been made, but something that popular would have been sold to the movies. There's no place for me to go from here. There's no reviews that bring it out to a wider audience. There's no cultural weight that it, it, that it acquires because we haven't built the cultural infrastructure, the reviews, the award ceremonies, the, chat, the chatter, the podcast that talk about culture from that point of view. All we do is complain about their culture. We complain about walking Phoenix, but we don't have an award ceremony where, you know, the guy who made the Clarence Thomas movie is going to get up to make a speech. And I think that, that that's the problem. You know, we really need to pay attention. Rich conservatives need to pay attention and build venues for people. And, and people who write and have magazines and have think tanks need to include experts on the culture, not just somebody who went to the movies one day and writes about it, but people who know what the, how the movies work. And I just think it's, it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. All I know is that more people call me now and talk to me about this than did when I started. When I started, I was looking into a bunch of blank faces. So I think there has been some movement. Uh, there has been a movement away from woke culture. You know, the, the joke, go woke, go broke, is really true. Uh, and I think it's just oppressive, and Americans don't like it. And I hope that just remains true as the new generation comes up. He is Andrew Claven. He's a podcaster. You just heard him talking about that. Uh, check it out if you haven't already. Another Kingdom, which is in its third season. Also screenwriter for the movie Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer. And if you haven't seen that, then get in on one of the streaming services as well. Andrew, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. But why does it always seem to be me looking at you with you looking at me? 
good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and the uh, Joe Biden crack-up continues unabated. Perhaps the worst thing that Biden can do is appear at town halls where he has to act, interact with other human beings. He's just not very good at it. I suppose this is why he was measured and found not only wanting, not even interesting, in 1988 when he ran for president, in 2008 when he ran for president. And the only reason that this guy is even in the race is because uh, uh, Joe, because of Barack Obama thought he needed Scranton Joe to appeal to uh, Rust Belt uh, swing voters and, I don't know, give the appearance of uh, an elder statesman on the ticket with him. Joe Biden had this bizarre moment uh, the other day in Iowa, and, excuse me, in New Hampshire at a town hall where he was asked by a young woman who's now been identified as Madison Moore, a student at Mercer University, you know, about uh, what you did to have this poor performance in Iowa. You're tracking for a poor performance in New Hampshire. She didn't even mention. She was generous not to mention. Your South Carolina firewall has been pierced. In point of fact, recent polling shows that the percentage of blacks supporting Joe Biden, black Democrats supporting Joe Biden in New Hampshire, has, I mean, excuse me, in South Carolina, his firewall has been cut in half. So he's in free fall, and she wanted to know, well, then why should we believe you can win a national election? I'm going to be a little bit mean for a second, okay? So you're arguably the candidate with the greatest advantage in this race. You've been the vice president. You weren't burdened down by the impeachment trials. So in participation. So how do you explain... The performance in Iowa, and why should the voters believe that you can win the national election? Iowa's a Democratic caucus. You ever been to a caucus? No, you haven't. You're a lion dog faced pony soldier. You said you were. But you're, now you got to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. Lying dog faced pony soldier. What an odd response. And by the way, what does that mean if you haven't attended a caucus? I don't know. No, I haven't attended a caucus. So what? People in Iowa don't like you, and. It's because of the format of their election. What are you going to say when we have a primary in New Hampshire and you finish in the same place as you did in Iowa, or perhaps worse? Bizarre. And it got more bizarre. Another town hall. Joe Biden on guns. A treatise on our founders in the context of your two-way rights. No, And by the way, those who say the tree of liberty is water with the blood of patriots, a great line. Well, guess what? The fact is, if you're going to take on the government, you need an F-15 with Hellfire missiles. There's no way an AK-47 is going to take care of you if, the, if you're going to take on, you're worried about the government coming down, knocking down your door. Oh, boy. Yeah, they say the uh, tree of liberty, the blood of pain. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson is the they, right, Joe? Of course you know that. Uh, <laughs> The whole idea, yes, that the Second Amendment, the individual right to present, to per, per, prevent, protect against tyranny. Um, that's not the same thing as saying we're going to go storm the castle and uh, overthrow the government. What, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> an AK-47 versus an F-15. So uh, if uh, sport rifle owners in the country don't uh, 
willingly turn over their guns under a President Joe Biden? You're scrambling F-15s to take them out? Uh, how about something a little bit more surgical like a drone strike? I mean, it's better than Eric Swalwell, dearly departed California congressman from the race, uh, wanting to nuke gun owners. But yeah, let, let's let's get a little bit more surgical. You know, just do it uh, execution style, limited blast zone. It's just so bizarre. The way he talks about issues is so, <laughs> to the extent it's discernible, it's so convoluted. And then as he is get as he is in free fall, which he clearly is, he's getting more ornery, irascible, perhaps. Uh, uh, perhaps the faculties are waning a bit. Matt Taibbi writing in uh, Rolling Stone about Biden. He recalls uh, from Iowa this activist named Tracy Red, who's a Waterloo native who has rep Black Lives Matter, Greenpeace in the past. He was bird dog and Biden after a speech he gave in Iowa. And he asked Biden if he would agree to work towards phasing out fossil fuels. Before he knew it, Taibbi recounts, Biden was sticking a finger in his chest and angrily reading off credentials. Go back. 1986. I was the first one to ever introduce a climate change bill. He snapped at red. I thought to myself, uh, great, you did that in 86. But if we got a million species facing extinction, it's clearly still a problem. Red recalled. Biden pushed again. PolitiFact said it's a game changer, uh, adding, I've been working my whole life. He poked red in the sternum on fact, work, whole, and life, and then walked away like he dropped a mic, writes Taibbi. The scene was so bizarre that red could only respond by instinct. <laughs> this is sort of funny. Drawing on post-Travon Martin strategies for black men to keep safe in charged situations. You know, yes, sir, no, sir, don't talk back, keep your hands visible, lest Joe Biden might uh, go off and cold cock you. <laughs> I mean... It's just just such a bizarre incident. I mean, I guess it's better than if he had uh, sniffed Tracy Red's hair. It could have been worse. could always be worse with Joe. Groped him in some way. But this poking people, this uh, humiliating this young woman at uh, the campaign stop on Sunday in New Hampshire, this Madison Moore said, you know, it was kind of humiliating to be called a liar on national TV by the former vice president, uh, noting that instead of answering the question she asked Ray Ford about how can you win a national election, his immediate response was to attempt to invalidate me by exposing my inexperience. Yeah, she's got a point, actually. It's a legitimate question. You know, your the electability question is uh, beyond the pale. That's uh, an unfair question for Joe. And all the while, he's trying to cover up this free fall by uh, trolling Trump. That's really what he's doing. When he you know, runs around talking about how Trump is obsessed with him. I don't think so. But guess who else is in Manchester tonight? <laughs> Donald Trump. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. I have to tell you, uh, something, sometimes it feels like he's following me around. We already get rid of a president who calls generals to their faces. Losers. Dopes and babies. I know I am. Are you ready to get him a president who calls traumatic brain injury a headache? I know I am. Are you ready to get rid of a president who pins the Presidential Medal of Freedom on Rush Limbaugh? Are you ready to get rid of a president who has marched a decorated war hero out? 
out of the White House for telling the truth and who is a real hero and has real courage and escorted him out. Are you ready to get rid of a president with me? Crickets. 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 This is the Dan Prof Show. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, and we're going to do a little bit of a tutorial in economics here. should do that from time to time on uh, issues both uh, geopolitical as well as domestic, parochial even. Pleased to be joined again by Don Boudreau, who's an American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and also contributor to Cafe Hayek, which is a, a popular and very good economics blog. Don, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. You uh, recently penned a piece on free trade, and it's a difficult uh, conversation to have to engage people on in this era of, um, well, some, you know, protectionism. Uh, Both president uh, and, of course, the left believes you use uh, tax increases to open markets and uh, foment the reduction of trade barriers for a freer world when it comes to trading goods and services. Now, the president uh, ostensibly hasn't paid, and by by that I mean the American consumer, hasn't paid a huge price for Trump's protectionist trade policies, his use of tariffs as a cudgel, uh, because it's always difficult to explain to people what could have been that isn't. They see what is, and what is has been pretty decent because of some other deregulatory and tax relief policies. But but so why don't you take a step back before we get into the particulars of Trump's approach and just sort of a principled statement on free trade and why we should be preemptively free trade, why this whole argument about free and fair trade tit for tat is the wrong way to think about it. Because each American adult should be entrusted with the responsibility and freedom to spend his or her own income as he or she sees fit. And if if an American believes that buying a product offered for sale by a foreign producer is a better deal than a similar product offered for sale by a domestic producer, that's that person's right to buy it. Ultimately, I support free trade because it's a, for, for moral reasons. I, I don't believe the government should superintend the spending decisions of peaceful people. And just because a good happens to be sold by someone who lives abroad rather than someone who lives within the same political jurisdiction doesn't upend that moral principle. So as a moral principle, no one has any business superintending the spending decisions of peaceful people. As an economic principle, when the government does do that, when the government does interfere, when it does does block consumers' abilities to seek better deals abroad, 
it gives protection. That's the, that's why it's called protection. It gives monopoly protection to domestic or home producers, and that makes them less responsive to consumers. It makes them less innovative. It makes them less willing to keep their prices low, less attentive to keep their costs down, uh, less uh, willing to operate efficiently. And that's not good for the economy in the long run. As you say, it's difficult today to see the costs of Trump's protectionism, but the costs are real. There have been studies of Trump's tariffs, and the bulk of the studies, over a large bulk of the studies, show that Americans are paying the, the, the largest chunk of the cost of the tariffs. It is true also, as you say, that this bad effect is being swamped by the good effects of many of Trump's commendable policies, particularly, I think, the cut in the corporate tax rate, uh, the, the, the ending of the headlong rush into more regulation in most cases. This is keeping the economy buoyant. Uh, and because trade is only roughly one-fifth of our economy, these bad effects of the tariffs don't show up. But they are there. We would be even – economic growth would be even better. Americans would be even more prosperous were it not for Trump's trade policies. But how do you – and so how do you respond to those who say, I understand. I understand Econ 101, Don, and I understand that if you tax something, it gets passed along to the consumer, and now you've just artificially increased the price. I get it. I agree with you. But somebody had to do something about China. China's a bad actor. China's uh, thievery and onboarding of American technology, somebody had to reset the deck with China. All right, so two things. If we're talking about the alleged intellectual property theft, we have a way to deal with that. People don't like this answer, but it's actually a very good answer. And that is at least first take the disputes to the World Trade Organization. The World Trade Organization has, and China's a member of it, as is the U.S., has a dispute resolution mechanism for dealing with this. And it works really well. And China actually has a pretty good record of abiding by WTO rulings. The fact that the Trump administration has largely ignored that avenue tells me that the Trump administration uses the uh, intellectual property theft as an excuse for imposing the tariffs that it wants to impose. In terms of China's other policies that are complained about, alleged currency manipulation, subsidizing industries, its own tariffs, first of all, the United States does that too. It doesn't excuse it. But the main victims of those policies are not the Americans. Chinese. The yes. main, it's the Chinese. In fact, we Americans benefit to the extent that we're able to buy exports, or Chinese exports at lower prices because of Chinese export subsidies. We benefit from that. We shouldn't complain. China's, in, that, in those cases, Beijing is weakening its own economy and enabling America to strengthen its own economy. And when we come back with uh, economist uh, George Mason University, Don Boudreaux, I want to talk a little bit more about this as well as common good capitalism and pumping your own gas. Back with more Don Boudreaux right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Don Boudreau. He is an American economist, author, professor, and co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. We're having a discussion about China and trade policy, uh, as well as free trade policy more generally. I wanted to get your take on the argument that Marco Rubio and, to some extent, Josh Howley, so these are two erstwhile conservatives in the United States Senate, making arguments for what Marco Rubio terms common good capitalism. And, and one of the arguments Rubio makes in the area of trade, since that's what we were discussing, 
is uh, we got uh, trade interests that uh, are more important than the American economy. They're they're directly related to our national security. So when it comes to, say, for example, the rare minerals that we import from China for uh, for for the telecom industry, as well as for national defense. We have to think about more than just dollars and cents there. We have to think about our national security. So those sorts of considerations need to be included, and that's what common good capitalism does. All right. So first of all, no no uh, free trader has ever denied that there is what's called a national security exception to the case for free trade. Uh, if some products can be shown to be vital to the national security and a free trade in those products is legitimately a, 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 a risk to national security, then you carve out an exception. But in the case of, of, of Rubio, first of all, he's calling for much more than uh, a, a handful of tariffs on on some national security-related goods. Yeah. He's calling for industrial policy. This yes. is what he's calling common good capitalism. And so Rubio, bizarrely, uh, thinks that just because uh, the, the, the state under President Xi in China is engaging in more economic planning, that somehow the United States should do that too. Look, history teaches very clearly that to the extent that the state tries to plan the economy, it fails. It makes the people of that economy poorer. It makes that economy weaker. It's not going to succeed in China. And so there's no reason to think it would succeed here in the U.S. It's, it's, it, Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, and, and, and some other conservative pundits like Orrin Cass and Daniel McCarthy, these people don't know any economics. They may be well-intentioned. They don't know any economics, and they believe that entrusting the government to allocate resources will somehow uh, improve economic performance over allowing the competitive forces of the market to do so, and it's just not going, going to happen. It, really specifically, in the case of the, the, the rare earth minerals, um, that's also sort of a, uh, a, 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 a fake excuse uh, China, we do get a lot of these so-called rare earth minerals from China, but there are other places in the world that actually have these minerals. Um, most other places in the world don't don't uh, export them because China exports them at such low costs. Uh, but uh, uh, there's a guy, uh, I can't remember his name now, uh, Tim someone, he's an expert in these things, and he's always writing that when the, when the global price of these minerals goes up, these other countries that have them, they start exporting them. And so although we do get a large number of these minerals from China, it is a myth to think that the Chinese are the only uh, people who have access to these minerals and are the only people who are willing to export them. We get them from China because China can supply them to us very, very cheaply. And by the way, the Chinese have an interest in supplying them, them, them to us. So. There's a, a, a bromide that Marco Rubio came up with in defense of common good capitalism that I want you to address because I expect we're going to hear it a lot in the coming years. And that is, are we here to serve markets or are markets here to serve us? And I, I understand that's a straw man argument, but I want you to tell me why rather than me to tell you why. Well, obviously, uh, it, it, I, I think posing the question that way is, is, is absurd. Markets are simply what happens when you allow people to be free to sell and to buy peacefully and voluntarily. They, they are what emerges. And because in markets no seller can force a buyer to buy, no buyer can force a seller to sell, the exchanges that take place in markets are ones where all parties to the exchange gain. And so 
uh, markets do serve individuals. Markets are the forum in which individuals are best able to pursue their own economic goals and to increase their material standards of living. History's evidence in favor of this is overwhelming. And so, of course, markets are there to serve people because they are what emerge. That, that they're the institution that, that emerges when individuals uh, seek to pursue their own interests, but they can do so only by helping others. That's the beauty of markets. You can gain in, in the market only if in the market you help someone else. Uh, I, I wanted to get you to comment on this uh, in legislation that's been introduced at the state level in Illinois. It is the law to varying degrees in New Jersey and Oregon, the only other two states, that ban self-service gas stations, although in Oregon, standalone gas stations and counties with fewer than 40,000 residents, you're allowed to pump your own gas, which is a nice, uh, nice carve out there. Uh, Illinois wants to follow New Jersey, um, you know, to uh, eliminate self-service gas stations so as to create job opportunities and grow the economy and uh, and, you know, get people into the economy who may not have had opportunities. So What's wrong with this? This is, um, you know, government uh, doing the business of creating opportunities for its constituents. Well, uh, then, then the government of Illinois should is, is thinking too modestly. Not only should it, not only should it outlaw self-service gasoline stations, it should outlaw automobiles. And then, you know, we can bring back uh, blacksmiths and uh, uh, harness makers and and livery stable keepers. Uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's just a dumb. It's a dumb policy. Uh, at, at, at best, at best, it's idiotic uh, paternalism. Uh, I, I, and and you know, I know of no American problems coming from the fact that people are pumping their own gas. And, and, and moreover, really, are these the kind of jobs we want to, we, we, we're in desperate need of? Will, will Illinois become uh, the, an, an economic dynamic uh, place if many more people in Illinois are, 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 have jobs pumping gas? That's absurd. Um, and and so it's it's it, 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 it's it's one of these schemes that that you know looks good on paper to someone who thinks about these matters with the intelligence of a kindergartner, but when you think about them more <laughs> deeply, uh, you know they're exposed as just being nonsense. Uh, well, I'm not going to share your answer with any of the Illinois politicians, suggesting that they're too modest because they may take you up on that, and we may have automobiles banned here in favor of horse buggies well, and the other uh, examples you provided. That's true. And by the way, I didn't mean to insult kindergartners. I probably did. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have introduced that when I was in kindergarten. Uh, he is Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Also contributor to Cafe Hayek, Cafe Hayek blog. Check it out. Don Boudreau, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Just wanted to uh, update a story from over the weekend. This attack in Florida shopping mall in Jacksonville, Florida, where uh, a man deliberately ran his van into a GOP voter registration tent in the mall. Thankfully, no one was injured. People had to 
dive out of the way. There are pictures that have uh, circulated of, uh, you know, the voting registration booth being destroyed by this van plowing through it. There has been an arrest made, 27-year-old. New York Post reported on it. So did BuzzFeed, a couple other outlets. There's not a lot of detail about his political leanings. Hmm. It shouldn't be too hard to discern. But just reminding, after he plowed through the tent, according to an eyewitness who as well as the the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, the driver stopped out, stopped, got out of the van, took a video of the scene before flipping off the victims and fleeing the scene. <laughs> so, no, no, the motivation of the suspect, you know, maybe he knew one of the people at the voter registration tent, anything's possible, but it sure reeks of politics, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, the... Uh, the 27-year-old, uh, uh, we'll find out more information about him. And, and, of course, the president has weighed in. Senators Rubio and uh, Scott have called this an act of political violence and so forth. But, look, um, as they redefine everything else, the resistances, civil disobedience, and by the resistance, I mean the ends justify the means Jacobins, you know, redefine civil disobedience to cover preemptory violence. What is uh, more heroic than to stop a voter registration drive by deplorables for deplorables by any means necessary? Right. I mean, the world hangs in the balance. This is, uh, I think, what uh, some of the sociologists talking about uh, the uh, uh, faltering of our representative republic. Democracy is the handle they use. Obviously, it's a representative republic, not a democracy. This is sort of what they mean, not uh, these one-off incidents of political violence. And I'm not blaming either party. People have agency. So this 27-year-old is responsible for his actions. I don't care what the predicate was or what candidate he's supporting for president. But the idea that um, those in charge of our civilizing institutions are no longer really in charge and or Uh, no longer treat in an even handed way people with whom they disagree. There's something there's something to I don't I think the uh, predictions of America's demise or the demise of representative Republican form of government are vastly overstated. But there is something to that when civic institutions lose legitimacy. uh, Among different segments of the population and for different reasons. And then you get the ends justify the means crowd because they're all in the save the world business. And so they're all looking to be martyred in some material way. Dangerous stuff, dangerous stuff. And people who believe in peaceful pluralism across the spectrum. This is the time to step up and speak out and try to restore something approximating cultural norms when it comes to our politics. No matter how uh, how spirited the disagreements, it can't lead to what happened in Charlottesville, and it can't lead. And thankfully, it didn't. No one was injured again here. Can't lead to what happened in Jacksonville either. Thanks for joining us on the Dan Proctor. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.